Hello, and thank you for listening to the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from How to Argue with a Racist by Dr. Adam Rutherford and first broadcast live on the 16th of July 2020. A video recording of this and many other talks hosted by Skeptics in the Pub online are still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this podcast and thank you for your support. Well, thank Brian. That's a very kind introduction. Um, and yeah, to, to just to reiterate that, I, I love doing Skeptics in the Pub, mostly because I love pubs. I'm, I don't mind Skeptics either. Um, and it's it's a great tragedy that you have to do this like this, but I understand there are many more than more of you than can actually fit in a pub, so that's good. But um, if someone wouldn't mind bringing me a pint at about half past seven, that would be great. And uh, an IPA or a is, is absolutely fine. Um, now, I've got my own housekeeping. So there's, there's um, one is that, uh, as Brian alluded to, then there is some, this is a serious issue, and there is some content in here which uh, requires um, sensitivity. Uh, I will be warning about that. That, that. My second housekeeping issue is that my dog, Jesse, who is a little tiny puppy who should be asleep, asleep right now, but I just took him for a walk, and that seems to have not tired him out. But actually woken him up, so sorry about that. I'm sure Jesse will make an appearance at some point. Go to sleep, dog. Um, and the, I guess the third thing is that um, it's more about the content as well, which is that um, I'm going to be talking about race and racism um, primarily from a European perspective. And there's two reasons for that. One, that is I'm European, um, and this is uh, the culture with which I'm familiar and which the majority of the book is about. Uh, the second reason, I guess, is that the, the, the predominant forms of racism that I'll be talking about, indeed the predominant forms of racism that exist today, are largely, I argue in the book, and I'll be talking about tonight, um, derived from um, European expansionism, colonialism, um, empire building, and um, and those types of issues, uh, all of which are, are centered around this thing, this thing we call the Enlightenment, uh, which is largely a European phenomenon, the Enlightenment of Europe to the rest of the world, and I say that in quotation marks. Jesse, I need you to chill out and go to sleep now, mister. Okay. The, I, I can't see you. I've got no idea whether anyone's watching this or not or just listening to me um, talking to my dog. Anyway, so the book is How to Argue with a Racist. This, this first slide shows, shows the cover, um, and um, I suppose I should briefly talk about why I wrote it. So, so I've been writing it over the last couple of years, but it's built on uh, it's a vastly expanded um, uh, fr from a chapter in a previous book, but but one ago, a brief history of everyone who ever lived, which is about genetics and human evolution and culture. Um, but um, anticipating or recognizing, as Brian alluded to again, that the discussions about race have become more part of the public discourse uh, in recent years, uh, and and for a number of reasons, which I'll talk about in a minute, um, science has been. Uh, or is in danger of being co-opted into into those sorts of discussions, um, where the concept of race is really non-controversial within genetics, my field, uh, in that we talk about it not being a biological reality, but a social construct. And I'll, I'll explore that in a, in a bit as well. Now, this is non-controversial to say that within within the walls of the academy, but over the last few years, as a science communicator, particularly focused on on genetics and evolution. Um, I, I began to notice that the, the public discourse concerning race and biology uh, was somewhat different from the conversations I was having within um, the, the walls of the lab. 
And in some ways, that is on me. That is um, a failure to communicate contemporary thinking within human genetics. Um, and so this is an attempt to redress that balance and primarily to equip people to deal with questions about race and justifying bigotry using using science, um, uh, specifically with uh, focusing on the history of scientific racism as contemporary understanding of, of genetics. So um, if I just go to the first slide. So, so I just, I mean, I've, I've talked about a, um, a couple of those issues just then. We've had a changing political atmosphere, the rise of nationalism, um, further discourse on, on race being part of our public discourse in a far greater way than in living memory. That is not to say that racism went away. It's simply that it is more exposed than, than pretty much at any time that I can remember in my adult, adult life. In parallel to that, we've had a huge growth and maturation of human genetics, uh, which is great. And a matching popular interest in genetics, which is also great, particularly for people like me. Um, but part of that is something that we in the genetics community didn't really predict would happen, which was the sort of unprecedented interest in genetics that was driven by the enormity of the commercial genetics market, which is primarily driven by ancestry testing kits um, uh, from companies such as 23andMe and Ancestry.com and and many others. Now, they, they those companies, those two companies specifically, now own um, more human genomes um, and more human genome data than any science lab on Earth in total. And that's an interesting phenomenon I don't think we picked up on. But one of the things that commercial ancestry testing does as well, I, I, I argue, is that it reinforces some older notions about biological essentialism and genetic destiny, which I think are things that we had been moving away from in trying to communicate genetics and trying to understand human variation, um, but were I, somehow reinforced um, by what these tests actually do. I'm going to take that off you, Mr. Can I take that? Drop, drop, good boy, good boy, not good boy. All right, okay. Um, so there's four chapters in the book. It is a deliberately short book um, because I want it to be punchy, and um and easily digestible and really equip people uh with with many of these these the 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 tools the scientific tools and the historical knowledge that enables them to deal with questions of race so there's the origin of race there's uh concepts of racial purity race and sport which i think is enormously important even if you're not into sport i i am into sport and um uh, and i recognize that a lot of people aren't interested in sport but i think that historically and today uh, sports is one of the domains, the public domains, which is very popular, in which we are exposed to different um, uh, groups of people from around the world, and some stereotypes of race emerge from that. And I might touch upon some of those in a little bit. And then the four chapters on race and intelligence, which requires a whole series of lectures on its own, I probably won't talk about that tonight, but if it comes up in the questions, then maybe we can talk about it there. So just, um, this, this is my own 23andMe um, uh, uh, data map. Um, I'm half Indian, so my mother was born in uh, Guyana, but part of descended from the indentured from India, which is a form of slavery. And my dad is from Yorkshire. He was born in uh, Scarborough or Robin Hood's Bay, in fact. And, and what you can see in this is because of um, uh, because of that mix, I've got an almost 50-50, perfect 50-50 match of where my DNA is most resembles today. Now, this is a really important point because. There isn't a scientific method of identifying where your ancestors come from using genetics. What these maps do, what this data does, is it, it compares your DNA to the DNA of other paying customers. Until very recently, 
That's fine. Until very recently, my the Indian half of my genome was just one block because um, the people who tend to buy these tests come from higher socioeconomic um, backgrounds, and therefore the resolution for my European um, genome, so half of half of my DNA, uh, was was very high, and you could pick out individual points from you know Scandinavia and, and basically. Um, Northwest Europe, but until very recently, when the Indian half of it had been repopulated, it was just this block of text was basically all Indians are absolutely identical. But let me just stress that thing again: it doesn't it doesn't say where your ancestors are from. It says where people on Earth today have DNA similar to you today, and from that we infer where your ancestors are actually from. Now, part of my problem with I have many problems with these these types of commercial tests. But part of it is it's the, they have the effect of reinforcing or suggesting this kind of essentialism, this kind of cultural affinity that is based on where your DNA most resembles. So you get a, I get a lot of, of traffic from people uh, telling me, well, white people all want to discover that they're descended from Vikings. Well, you know, you are, and I will explain that in, in just a minute. But does that say anything about you or your personality or your behavior? No, it does not. The fact that my Indian DNA is most similar to uh, you know, more than a billion people uh, in, in India and Pakistan and Afghanistan says nothing about me as a person because I was born in Ipswich and my parents split up when I was very little. I was raised by my stepmother from a very early age. And so my cultural affinity is, is nothing to do with India or indeed Guyana, which is where my mother was actually born, but it is being from Ipswich. And I, you know, I support Ipswich Town and I come from Suffolk and go to, I'll be going to Aldborough next week. Um, but that's not what these tests sort of imply, or that's not what the attraction of these types of tests are. It, it, it is the, you know, the appeal of discovering something about yourself that you did not know, and that this is encoded in DNA. Now, this is what a family tree, a standard family tree looks like. So there's you at the bottom there, and then you have two parents and four grandparents and eight great-grandparents and so on. So if you go back seven generations, you have 256 people on there, if you are fully outbred. And I've just made the point that I was born in Suffolk, so that possibly... Well, we'll park that just for a minute. Um, but it relies on the notion, which is absolutely true, that everyone in history has had two parents. There are some caveats to that. Jesus is one of them. I'm just playing to the skeptics audience. Doesn't go down so well in religious um, talks, that joke. So that's a standard family tree. But of course, no family tree actually looks like that because people are complex and families are complicated and, and mixed up through the generations. And in fact, um, that's a genealogical family tree. What we now think is that family trees look much more like this, right? So, so this, this is what family trees really look like. It's you at the bottom there. And what I mean by this is that you have this, the, 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 if you double the number of ancestors you have as you go back in time, it means that you have two to the power of N ancestors where N is the number of generations you go back. So by the time you get a thousand years uh, back into the past, say, which is roughly 40 generations, then you'll have more than a trillion ancestors. And there haven't been a trillion humans alive on Earth in the history of this planet. And so what we actually see is what's shown on this this chart here by Graham Coop, who's a geneticist in, in, uh, in the States, UC uh, Santa Barbara, uh, which is that you have that number of positions on your family tree, two to the power of N, but rapidly they become filled with the same people multiple times over until eventually all branches of all family trees cross through all individuals at a point at, at, at a time that we refer to as the genetic iso point. But what the point of this is, is that we're incredibly inbred, not just in, inbred, not just Suffolk boys like myself, 
but humanity is. We are all descended from the same populations in the very recent past. Um, so all Europeans are descended from the same population only a thousand years ago, and all humans are descended from the same population uh, only three and a half thousand years ago. So that's about the 14th century BCE, which is the time of, you know, Ramesses II or Confucius or uh, pick someone from history at, at, at that time. So if you were alive at the Isa point, say a thousand years ago in Europe or three and a half thousand years ago in the rest of the world, if you're alive at that time and you have living descendants alive today, then you are the ancestor of everyone alive today. All family tree lines for all people will pass through all individuals over for Europe a thousand years ago, for the whole world three and a half thousand years ago. So the concept of ancestral purity is, is just, just nonsense, right? It, it doesn't exist. And when we do those genealogy tests or when we look at our family trees using traditional genealogy or when we watch programs like Who Do You Think You Are, uh, what they all do is reinforce this notion that we have these pure lineages that we can trace back and they say something about us, um, that if you can trace your ancestry back to you know, the Vikings or William Conqueror or Edward III or, or you know, anyone you want to name in, in history, that somehow that gives you a lineage and says something about the purity of your, your lineage. When in fact, by doing that, you're ignoring everyone else uh, on your family tree. Um, I, I found out during the writing of this book that I'm five, my, my five times great grandmother was a Native American circus performing horse jumper called Mary Huntley, uh, whose wedding certificate we have she was married in Covent Garden um, in 1821, and it says Savage on that marriage certificate. Now, that's pretty cool that I'm descended from a circus, um, a Native American horse jumping circus performer. Uh, of course, it means absolutely nothing, not me. I probably don't carry any of her genetics and uh, any of her DNA. And indeed, I'm ignoring all of the other people on exactly the same tier of that family tree, which is 63 other women and 64 other men. Um, so this this type of this this family tree here is a much better representation of how messed up how how our trees are not trees but they're webs they're matted webs. Now the reason I'm talking about this is as well is because uh, white supremacists um, are absolutely obsessed with the concept of racial purity, specifically white purity, because that allows them or in, in their worldview it allows them to demonstrate their own. Uh, both purity and superiority of the over the other races of the world. Now, the, the oldest and longest standing um, white supremacist website is Stormfront, uh, which was founded in '93, so it's been around for a long time. It's, it is, I, I believe, the most popular to to date. And um, I, I spend a lot of time hanging around racist forums on the internet, mostly so that you don't have to. Um, but there are a lot of discussions about racial purity um, uh, and. Ancestry testing on these types of forums. Here's a screenshot from uh, um, uh, from 4chan. And um, what, I'm sorry, Jesse's being very distracting in the background here. Dude, come on, show your boots, man. On the sofa. Um, one of one of the things that is uh, you know slightly amusing in uh, in looking at these very dark places on the internet is that when they take these types of tests like 23meanancestry.com and uh, reveal that what they reveal is that they've got recent ancestry from people who they despise, from non-Northern white Europeans. Um, and uh, I, I've been tracking this for, for, for years now. Um, 
but a couple of years ago, there was a, the, the first actual study of this as a phenomenon, which was just based on Stormfront, and it was something like 3,000 comments um, uh, from Stormfront, where people had specifically taken a test and had discovered that they had non-white European, Northwestern European specifically, ancestry, and then tracked the comments, tracked the revelations, um, that how they expressed themselves. The one on the screen at the moment is, you know, well, it's a, some, something of a joke, I suppose. Uh, my life has been a lie. Where do I go from here, says this person. Um, but the comments broadly fall into several uh, neat silos here. The first of which is try another company for a different result. Um, now, that's uh, Jesse um, interrupted that with a sort of joke, I suppose, because that does sound kind of funny. It's actually, that's not actually as ridiculous as it sounds, because the different companies do have different uh, panels that they refer to. And you can get slightly different results from different companies, which somewhat reinforces the notion that these are not that much more than sort of shiny gimcrack. Now, Jesse, call, call you Jets, pal. Um, the second most common one is that 23andMe is run by Jews. Try another company for a different result. Okay, we're into conspiracy territory now with 23andMe is run by Jews who pump false information to sow racial disharmony. Try another company for a different result. This this one I thought was particularly telling. Um, this is a specific example. Um, look in the mirror. If you don't see a Jew, you're okay. Now, that, that this seems, you know, partic- apart from the fact that it's deeply, deeply uh, anti-Semitic, um, it, it also seems sort of sort of scientifically problematic on the grounds that if you're using a test to demonstrate your your racial purity or your your non-Jewish um, ancestry, and it shows that you have Jewish ancestry, and then you can just ignore that by deciding that you're not Jewish, then you've really wasted a hundred pounds or a hundred dollars in taking the test in the first place. And then other uh, examples are simply that you should kill yourself. Now, I don't want to talk too much about white supremacists because I think they're far less interesting uh, than people who don't believe they're racist, but actually express racist views. These are overt racists, of course, and they're not people with whom you can reason. They didn't reason themselves into having those bigoted views. Um, But that obsession with with racial purity that has been um, somewhat um, enhanced or bolstered by modern genetics, or these modern commercial genetic testing kits um, uh, is, is exemplified by um, a phenomenon that emerged a couple of years ago. So the uh, the person on the on the left you'll recognise, you might recognise, is Richard Spencer. So the the, the coiner of of the alt right, um, a, a white supremacist by any definition. And you'll note that between his um, the, his his first and second name on on this was his Twitter handle uh, is a glass of milk. And on the right hand side there is a video which is from YouTube reported in the New York Times of white supremacists uh, chugging milk. This is, it's referred to as chugging milk, where they take milk and they down it by the litre. Now, the idea behind this is one of the most, uh, a complete misunderstanding of one of the most interesting pieces of recent, um, human e- uh, recent understanding of genetics and human evolution, which is to do with a concept called uh, lactose persistence, lactase persistence. So white people, Europeans, predominantly can process milk after weaning. So they have, we, they have a a particular enzyme which continues to work after uh, children have stopped breastfeeding, which allows them to continue to process milk into adulthood. And that is why we have milk on our cereal in in the morning. Um, We we know when that occurs. We know that the fixation, um, the the, the frequency with which that genetic um, um, allele exists 
in uh, Europeans is extremely high and it's very low for the rest of the world. Now, these guys have got hold of this and think that somehow that demonstrates their A, racial purity and B, for some reason, racial superiority. Uh, they have failed to notice in the identification of this gene that it also exists in uh, in the Hutu, uh, in um, uh, members of the uh, Khoikhoi, the Khoisan, in Middle Eastern camel herders. Basically, anyone whose ancestors were pastoralists, were dairy farmers, have developed exactly this, this genetic capability, lactase persistence, and the ability to process milk. And so it's very easy to mock these people because they are ridiculous, um, but they make it easier for us by being so pig ignorant and abusing, misunderstanding science in order to uh, to bolster their racism. It's got a plant pot. OK, now um, I want to park the white supremacists aside because as I said that they're, they're far less interesting than the, the, the conversation we're having in the public discourse at the moment, uh, which, as I said at the beginning, it seems to be more prevalent than at any other time in history. Um, uh, and it's part of our national discourse. We have a prime minister who is a racist. I feel no compunction about uh, about saying that. Um, uh, it is, of course, impossible to know the heart of uh, of, of a man or, or a woman, but um, um, he has frequently written specifically racist things in the past. And I'm sure you all know about that. For in the interest of political balance, and these are not my views, but uh, the fact that anti-Semitism has become one of the defining issues of the Labour Party and the Labour movement in the last few years, um, it is is oh my god, is factually correct. Um, whether or not it is true, or whether you believe it or not, is a different matter. But the fact that the Jewish Chronicle put that on the cover of uh, their newspaper in 2018 is significant. And then earlier this year, um, Dominic Cumming, the, um, the PM's chief advisor, uh, recruited a young man called Andrew Sabisky, both of whom have expressed frequent interest in um, racialized eugenics and a misunderstanding of uh, con contemporary human genetics. Um, both of them form... I'm going to... Excuse me. Jesse, no, just leave that. Enough. Come on, shush. Sofa. Thank you. Just call your jets, buddy. Um, yeah, what was I saying? Anyway, racism is part of the, the national discourse. Now, one thing I want to stress is that I, I do think that it is right to say that, uh, that we are a less racist country than we have been in, at any point in the past. It, it is perhaps more accurate to say that the, there is the current exposure of racism which has never gone away, a structural racism which isn't simply what the white supremacists do, which is to basically call each other names. Um, it's quite difficult to assess scientifically or via surveys how racist the country is. The, the British Attitude Survey has been running since 1983 and back then when asked the question, when, when you ask questions, are you a racist, people tend to either lie or not answer, uh, understandably. So we, we ask questions by proxy and you say things like, well, um, how happy would you be if your son or daughter married someone of a different race? 1983, when that question was first asked in the British Attitude Survey, um, uh, the answer came out about 40% of people would be uh, deeply unhappy if their son or daughter married a black person or an Asian person. Um, and that, that number has now dropped to below 16% um, when it was asked uh, two years ago. However, the that was also the first year that the question was asked of, of Muslims. So would you be happy if um, 
your son or daughter married a Muslim. And the number there was, I think, 40 percent again. So racism and bigotry, it doesn't go away, but it shifts according to current and changing uh, cultures. And I recognize that Islamophobia um, is people people refer to it as not being you can't be racist because it's a religion there are other forms of racism which aren't predicated primarily on skin color now i, I do think that things are better uh today than they have been in the past this was a conservative party leaflet for smevic near birmingham uh from 64 if you desire a colored for a labor vote labor if you're already burdened with one votes tory um jesse who is uh being extremely unhelpful at this very point in time is named after this man in the middle jesse owens the one of the finest athletes of all time and um this i think this is one of the most powerful photos that i'm aware of where he cleaned up four gold medal medals in the olympics in 36 uh, not just um an amazing feat in itself but he did it literally in front of adolf hitler uh, and so this was massively undermined by his own coach Subsequently, a guy called Dean Cromwell referring to him and black people in general as being closer to nature. It wasn't that long ago that they had to run away from gazelles or, or tigers in the veld. Um, so sport is a domain in which racism has been expressed and racialized views are, have been expressed for, well, for forever. Um, in football in the UK, this is a picture of the great John Barnes and 88, kicking a banana skin, a banana off the pitch that had been thrown at him, as happened week on week for all black players in English football during that era. Uh, now, uh, football has made great strides in eradicating or trying to eradicate racism from football and continues to do so with a, a good deal of success. However, there is Aubameyang in 2018 um, in exactly the same uh, position with the banana skin being thrown onto the pitch there at the Emirates. Uh, I guess the difference is that thousands of people were doing it back in 1988, uh, in 2018, when this happened on other occasions in recent history, when, when this happened, uh, the perpetrators were banned for life and they were um, uh, immediately identified as being racist. Um, so I guess things are better, but they certainly haven't gone away. And, you know, often people say, yeah, come on, Britain is really quite not, it's not really a very racist country. You know, you guys, the number of people that tell me on Twitter that I seem obsessed with race, why don't I just chill out, is uh, I, I don't find this a very compelling argument. We don't just stop because things are better. So I mentioned at the beginning and some, something which is uncontroversial in, in science, which is that race as we currently recognize it and talk about it is a social construct and not a biological reality now sometimes that gets translated or, or sort of simplified into the phrase that race does not exist now i think this is really important a really important point race absolutely does exist it exists because it is a social construct and not as a biological construct race exists because we 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 deem that it does we recognize differences in populations and we attach social categories to them in a way that um, people recognize. I don't think it's helpful to say that race does not exist because you're, you're actually denying people's experience. You're asking people to to say um, that this social agreement that we have the world over, which is very flexible through times I'm going to talk about, is not is not permanent and is not essentialist. Uh, you're asking people to to deny the, the the thing that they're looking at. So that's the thing that I'm going to focus on in the next. Um, how long have we been talking? It's probably been half an hour already. Uh, yeah, in the next um, twenty minutes or so, and then we'll we'll break for questions. Um, 
Okay, so there's the four chapters, and I'm just going to talk about the origin of race because the origin of race relates specifically to the current concept of how we recognize race, how we talk about race as a social construct. But also, it's very important because it is the root of not just my science, which is evolutionary genetics or genetics or biology in general, but it is in fact inherently tied to the root of all science via this project that we fondly refer to as the Enlightenment or the Age of uh, Reason or the Scientific Revolution. All terms that I have some problems with as post hoc labels um, that are a little bit like statues don't necessarily actually accurately display or discuss history, but put, simply put a marker in the sand and say this is a thing that happened. So I'm going to talk primarily about skin color. There's a nice slide of some variation in skin color on some young children. Um, and the reason I want to talk about skin color is because from the origin of race, as we think about it today, which begins in the 17th century or so, skin color was the primary determinant of how we would describe, how we would taxonomize or classify the people of the earth as we would meet them, um, as Europeans would meet them uh, via colonial expansion. And that is not to say that when I say the invention of race occurs in the 17th century or so, that is not to say that the recognition of differences between populations and the recognition of different pigmentations in people is not much older. It obviously is. It's also not to say that everything was hunky-dory and sweet and rosy back before the 17th century. Um, things were, I believe, much worse in ancient history for most people than they are today. It's simply the case that the racial epithets we use today and the social structure of, of racism that we experience today and that we enact today was not present until European expansionism. And this, by the way, is not a controversial idea within history. This is this is pretty standard um, history of race stuff. It's just that I think that it was new to me learning this because I'm a scientist, not a historian. Um, uh, so it was new to me over the last you know decade or so. But also, I don't think it's necessarily well known uh, within, within scientific communities. And it's, it's something that we don't necessarily recognize that the roots of our subjects are based on, on um, uh, racial pseudoscience. But just to go back to the earliest references to pigmentation, actually with our earliest texts altogether, which is uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, possibly by this chap, um, in which pigmentation is described for different characters notably Odysseus who whose skin pigmentation actually changes um, during the Odyssey and the Iliad um, and he's described as swarthy and dark-skinned um, but more as a descriptor of his character than anything else sort of equivalent to and this was a very this was this was what happened a lot in in um, classical descriptions of pigmentation they are more references to their characters than they are to any sort of you know particular group of people um, the offensive comparison in contemporary language is sort of like referring to, to women as blonde as an insult. You know, the implication being that they might be um, a bit um, ditzy, uh, which, you know, I recognize that is absolutely an offensive thing, thing to say. But that's a sort of equivalent to, to the classical references to color. The earliest reference to sub-Saharan African uh, pigmentations comes from the word Ethiops, as in Ethiopia. Ethiops literally means burnt face or burnt skin. Um, now, 
one of the reasons that the people tend to think about pigmentation and, and ancient, the ancient world as being predominantly white, this is something that Mary Beard talks about very eloquently and David Olusoga as well, is, well, it's a lot to do with the fact that statues that we, the remaining classical statues that we have today are white. Um, they weren't white back in the day. They were mostly brightly colored painted, but the, white, the paint has washed off over the, uh, the millennia. Um, we have um, uh, images from from uh, round about, about the time of the ice point that I was talking about earlier um, of multiple skin tones from sub-Saharan Africans. And this is uh, from the tomb of an Egyptian governor round about the time of Tutankhamun. Um, now, but again, again, all of these references are, tend not to be as a, a primary classifier. So the descriptions of the different types of people of the world uh, partially to simply identify them, partially to justify uh, bigotry or warfare or um, subjugation or slavery. It wasn't primarily determined by pigmentation. They were much more concerned with language, geography, culture, religion, and not pigmentation. The first indication that we have as pigmentation of pigmentation being a determinant of, of, uh, of character and therefore a potentially useful for the subjugation, for the enslavement of people, comes from Avicenna, um, the great Uzbeki sort of proto-scientist, philosopher, and thinker. And he writes about the Islamic slave trade, which lasts for more than 900 years and possibly 5 million people enslaved during that era, but describes people with very dark skin, which we think are sub-Saharan Africans, as being feckless, but strong, and, and therefore ripe for subjugation. But interesting, he also refers to very pale-skinned Northern Europeans as being stupid and fickle, and, and therefore also should be in, enslaved. So this is, a, this is the first example, really, that we have of using skin color to try and determine the character of a people with the intention of subjugating them, the intention of othering them such that enslavement of them becomes more reasonable. And that becomes the primary principle between the of, of the classification of people that occurs with European expansionism that, that uh, begins in the 17th century, 17th, 18th century. Um, I want to talk about these five men. They're all great founders of Western philosophy, because, um, but they are also um, uh, uh, part of the beginning of the discussions about race and the descriptions of people uh, in these heavily racialized terms. Uh, in order that um, they could be not only classified, but also um, hierarchically classified, and therefore, again, justifying the subjugation of, of, uh, of people. Now, who have we got here? We've got um, uh, Voltaire's in the middle, and that's Kant on the right, and that's Linnaeus, top left, and Blumenbach, and then Galton is a, uh, sorry, not Galton, that's Huxley, uh, comes a little bit later, but I'm going I'm to briefly talk about all of them. Um, as these people are, are, many of them who didn't travel at all, but as they are beginning to um, experience people from the rest of the world and trying to apply scientific, what we now think are pseudoscientific uh, classifiers to the people that they meet, um, there were two sort of schools of thought, two broad philosophies in opposition to each other, which were referred to as the monogenus and the polygenus. And the monogenus, well, you've got to remember that everyone is a, is a, um, uh, biblical creationist at this time there is no one well apart from voltaire but the, the most people um uh, uh, adhere to the belief that the account of the origin of humankind in genesis is correct we're all derived from adam and eve 
um, and the Garden of Eden being somewhere in the Middle East. The monogenist thought that that was literally the case that we acquired the different characteristics that you see in people around the world uh, as we migrated away from um, from the Garden of Eden and acquired those characteristics as a result of, of well, just, just sort of local adaptation in a way, which is a remarkably modern uh, sort of evolutionary thought. The polygenists um, thought that people migrated away from Adam and Eve and once they reached those locations, developed those characteristics in situ. Um, I, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting parallel with much of the arguments about human origins that occurred in the late 20th century uh, in the multi-regional hypothesis where people had argued, not wholly unsuccessfully for a few years, uh, that the differences we see between people is that, that they emerge from different lineages of humans around the world. Um, but that was put to bed by what we now think is you know, unequivocally think is correct, which is the out of Africa hypothesis, which is that we are an African species and that around 70 to 100,000 years ago, a population migrated away from Africa and we changed on that trajectory as we moved around the world. Now, I want to focus a little bit on Carl Linnaeus and you'll all be familiar with him. We still use his system of classification in all uh, areas of biology. That's um, genus and species in Latin. Homo sapiens or pan brododites if you're a chimpanzee or pampaniscus if you're a uh, bonobo, gorilla if you're a gorilla, 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 gorilla if you're a western gorilla. I just find that quite amusing. Um, the eastern gorilla is called gorilla, gorilla, beringii after uh, a guy called Beringe, a Belgian man who was the first person to shoot one. Anyway, that's a relevant aside. Um, Linnaeus wrote uh, uh, more than 13 volumes of Systemae Naturae during his life in which he tried to classify all living things. He also tried to classify rocks in there as well, but that didn't really work out. Uh, and and it's, a, it's, a, it's an important piece of work. Um, it's also an incredibly racist piece of work because in the categorization of humans, of Homo sapiens, he introduces subspecies which are based on racialized characteristics. Five he introduces. Um, so... Uh, Americanus, so that would be Native Americans or indigenous people of America, whose skin is red, black, straight hair, stubborn, zealous and regulated by customs. Asiaticus or um, East Asians, we might refer to that, those populations today. Yellow skin, stiff black hair, dark eyes, haughty, greedy, ruled by opinions. Africanus, black skin, frizzled hair, silky skin, flat nose. You know, you can read it for yourself. Now, there's a, it, it, there's a What's worth pointing out here is well, two things. The first is that skin color is the primary determinants, right? It's the first thing mentioned, the skin color of these people. The second thing is that you can see how quickly it goes from a phenotypic description, inaccurate as they might be, or very broad brush uh, accuracy as they might be, into value judgments, stubborn, haughty, greedy females without shame. Now, there was also Homo sapiens europaeus, who were white-skinned with blue eyes, gentle, acute, inventive, and governed by laws. And so this is the first taxonomy that is really significantly hierarchical. And of course, in all of the taxonomies by many different people of this time, white Europeans come top of the pile. So it's not merely taxonomy or classification. It is hierarchical. It is a ranking system. It is Europeans and everyone else. Now, I'm just going to include in a later edition, he also introduced Homo sapiens monstrosus, which included Patagonian giants and alpine dwarves and mono-orchid hottentots, which is, um, well, men with one testicle 
um, from what we now call Bushmen or Khoisan. I include that because partially because it's amusing and ridiculous, but it also shows how absurd this categorization system was. And although we still rely on Linnaeus's taxonomy um, uh, for describing biological organisms today, you can see how how borderline nonsensical his descriptions of humans are at this time. And yet they are the founding principles of human classification. This is the first really significant um, scientific description of of humans. And it is one that we, that that has echoes into the present day. Now on the other side of the, 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 so so Linnaeus is a, is a monogenist. The, The most prominent polygenist was, uh, Voltaire, one of the great heroes in the Enlightenment, and I'm sure many of you will be, will be uh, fans of, of his work. Now, he, he was a, a great thinker and very amusing as a writer. He was also profoundly, profoundly racist as well. And I think the reason I want to talk about these guys is because one of the key principles in, in science is that we talk about how we stand on the shoulders of giants. We see further by standing on the shoulders of giants. We pay reference to people who have come before us and done the foundational work on which we base our current work. That was a phrase that was made popular by Newton in a letter to Hooke um, uh, in 16, 16 something. Someone in the, in the comments will tell me the exact date. Um, but in fact, it, he was referencing Bernard of Chartres, who's an 11th century philosopher from France, who himself was referencing the legend of uh, Orion the Hunter, who temporarily blinded, placed his dwarf slave or servant on his shoulder so he can continue to hunt and it's a beautiful and important phrase that we should revere and should continue to use but it only tells half of the picture because we also have to recognize that we stand on the shoulders of 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 these giants of these intellectual giants who were also terrible people or held terrible views or held views that we now find appalling i know that we are not meant to judge people by contemporary standards in history but it is possible to contextualize their views relative to the time um this this is what um this is one of the things that voltaire had said about um sub-saharan african people and this is you know this is this is deeply offensive and and um and deeply problematic um you can read that for yourself um voltaire believed that um, sub-saharan african people were a different species from homo sapiens such was the depth of of his racism um and yet again we regard him as one of the great founders of european thought which is fine um but we need to recognize and understand our own history i'm perhaps people will talk about cancel culture or re re um, visiting uh these heroes um intellectual heroes or otherwise from our past um and maybe that will come up in the discussions because i i think well, I have complex views on that matter. Um, Johann Friedrich uh, Blumenbach was a German scientist uh, from around about the same time. And he's the first person to start using actual metrics. So actually starting to measure things in order to classify humans. And he comes up with a taxonomy based on measuring 60 skulls that are being given to him from around the world, from explorers and, and travelers. And, and with that, he came up with a system which was pretty much the same as Linnaeus's, so five primary races now i i again you know referring to people everyone being more racist back in history which is i I think reasonable to say but also contextualizing that not everyone was as as racist as each other and certainly not everyone was as racist as as voltaire we're very lucky in biology that we have 
um, Darwin as our figurehead, who was measurably more liberal and less racist than many of his his contemporaries. We think this may be to do with um, the fact that he was very close to his taxidermy tutor whilst an undergraduate at Edinburgh who was a freedman called John Edmonston. Um, and there is, this is a, a post hoc, a post posthumous um, image of him. There are no recorded images of John Edmonston. Now, Darwin talks about race in his second best book, The Descent of Man, uh, of which I have a copy up there. And um, now, Darwin is not without problem when it comes to discussing the people of, of the earth. He is significantly less racist than most Victorian scientists, including his cousin Francis Galton, um, who was a profoundly racist man, and I've talked about him to skeptics groups over the last few years. Um, but he, in, in The Descent of Man, he actually makes a slight mockery of, of um, the whole concept of, of race by pointing out how many different people have tried to categorise the races and how no one can agree on, on a number, the range being between one and 63. He also goes on to say this, that, um, uh, that he thinks that they are not discrete groups of people at all, um, but that they graduate into each other. And he, he goes on to see, say that he can't imagine that any characteristics described within the so-called races would have immutability, would be permanent or couldn't change over, uh, over a few generations. So again, very prescient um, and I, I, based largely on, on data and his extensive travels and meeting people of the earth. Darwin, not without problems, um, uh, but far less racist than most people of that time. Now, uh, Thomas Huxley was, was Darwin's greatest defender, and um, uh, he had a go at racial classification in the 1870s, um, and this is uh, a version of, of his map. And you'll, you'll notice that there are many more categories. So there's many more designations of races of the people of, of the earth um, uh, uh, compared to, say, Linnaeus or, or Blumenbach. And he, for example, you know, makes, makes distinctions between the people in Europe, the people in northern Africa, sub-Saharan Africa and southern Africa. So um, they're referred to as Melanocroy, Xanthocroy being Europeans, Negro and, and Bushman. And I mean, that, that's, that's interesting. He's very reverent to the, the Linnaeuses and the Blumenbachs of, of the past, but recognises that there are quite clearly many more different types of people than that can be categorised into those, those, those five clumsy groups. Now, I, I bring him up for a specific reason, and this, this comes with a warning because this is, this is not pleasant one to follow. But it refers specifically to the fact that um, Huxley and others, I'm not laying this at Huxley's door, but Huxley and others, their distinction between the Melanocroy and the Negro uh, within Africa was in some ways predicated on um, uh, an invention of anthropology of that time. They recognised that the Melanocroy had lighter skin than sub-Saharan Africans to, described as, as here as Negroes. And an invented category of people called the Hamites, descended from Ham, the son of Noah, uh, was, was used to account for the influx of this lighter, this, these European uh, skin tones into some parts of Africa, but not into others. And this is important for, for a number of reasons. It's, it's not, not correct. Um, there, uh, we... Uh, there are many complications about the skin tones within Africa, which I will refer to in just a minute. But it's important for a specific reason, because this 
misunderstanding or this invention of science becomes the basis for what is uh, inarguably one of the greatest atrocities of the of the 20th century, which is the um, Rwandan civil war. And so without going in too much detail about the, the history of Rwanda, that during colonialization, it was initially the Germans who had uh, control as colonizers of what we now refer to as Rwanda. Um, and there are two primary tribes within Rwanda, the, the Hutu and the Tutsi. And they are, until um, German and subsequently Belgian rule, were largely, um, had largely affable relations, have distinct lineages, the, the Hutu being um, pastoralists with slightly paler skin and... Um, um, uh, and this was capitalized upon by uh, Germans who wanted to maintain better relationship with the Hutu and therefore asserted that they had um, uh, input from, they had paler skin as a result of uh, introgression from the Hamites, this made up group of people. Now, this, so this is the racialization of a group. And, and this is primarily for uh, for commercial reasons. They had better commercial relationships with 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 the Hutu and Tutsi. Um, the Belgians take over and they reinforce this in the beginning of the 20th century. And by the 1930s, this has been introduced into um, identification cards. So if you look at just underneath the photo there, you can see Hutu, Tutsi, and two other smaller um, tribal groups of people. So this. This, this is a sort of formal racialization of tribal groups that are not fundamentally distinct from, from each other in any great significant way. But this escalates, and the, I suppose the biggest tragedy of this is that the Hutu and the Tutsi buy into this mythology that is based on pseudoscience and, and, and a fiction. And it escalates after the colonizers leave in 59 um, and um, uh, install a government's there's civil war throughout the next several decades, which culminates in the 1990s with the civil war that's, that occurred in which uh, hundreds of thousands were murdered in the space of just 100 days. This is the first time the United Nations refers to rape as a, as a weapon of war. All of that predicated on the pseudoscience of colonizers um, in the late 18th and early 19th century. And remember that this is 1994, right? So I'm an undergraduate at UCL in the Goldstone Laboratory studying genetics while this is taking place. So this is not ancient history at all. Most or many of you watching right now will remember this very clearly. Uh, but the roots of it are very, very clearly associated with the pseudoscience of race um, that was uh, introduced by our founding intellectual fathers such as Linnaeus and Voltaire and Blumenbach and, and the like. Um, how am I doing for time? Um, Jesse's all quiet now. Okay, yeah, let me wrap up so we can go to questions if we can have a drink in, in, in just a minute. Um, so I referred earlier to, to Homo sapiens being um, an African species. The out-of-Africa hypothesis is, is, is the one that we think is most true, although there are now some very interesting um, uh, details on that which we haven't, uh, which which weren't, which are beginning to emerge in the era of genomics. But what that basically means is that Homo sapiens is an African species, which means that most of our evolution occurred within Africa until relatively recently. That was in the Rift Valley in East Africa, where most remains were found. But the oldest Homo sapiens are now identified from uh, Morocco, 
in a place called Jebel Arud, and that's about 300,000 years ago. So a new model is beginning to emerge that we are sort of pan-African species, but it still is that the out-of-Africa hypothesis is correct. And at some point in the last 100,000 years, a relatively small population, a sort of sampling era of a population, emerged out of Africa, migrated around the world, and it is primarily from that pool of people um, that the people of the peopling of the of the rest of the world occurred. Um, that is shown. That, that the map that I'm showing at the moment is from Chris Stringer, who I know has given skeptics talks in the past, and this is based largely on anthropological paleoanthropological data, so old bones. Um, we, we can now do. We can sort of recapitulate that map using genetic data now, and so this is from my colleagues at um, the genetics department, UCL, Mark Thomas primarily, and this is one of those scaled maps. Um, which in this particular case shows um, uh, shows the size of the continents or sh- size of the land masses based on the amount of genetic diversity within those um, areas. And so what you can clearly see from that is that there is more genetic diversity within Africa than in the rest of the world put together. Um, and that rings true with our theory of uh, the Africa hypothesis, which is that most human evolution occurred within Africa. Now, I started this section by talking about pigmentation and talking about how pigmentation had been the primary determinant for the racial categorizations of those men in the 17th and 18th centuries. And it is still, as we are a very visual species, the primary determinant for the racializations of social categories that we use today. But it's meaningless scientifically or virtually meaningless scientifically for reasons that really are only, have only come to light in, in doing proper studies uh, on the African co- continent with African people, which have only really occurred with any sort of scientific rigor within the last five to ten years. And what we now know is that there is, in fact, more pigmentation diversity within Africa than in the rest of the world put together. And yet we refer to all people of African descent as being black. It is a descriptor that we sort of know what it means. It means people of recent African descent. But it is, it's this almost nonsensical thing to say, you know, especially in reference to when we talk about black people in the Americas uh, who have a different evolutionary trajectory as a result of the transatlantic slave trade and the descendants of the enslaved, which are, uh, are, are genomically identifiably different from the people from whom they were taken. Um, we also know by looking at the genes that encode pigmentation that there is more diversity in pigmentation genes than in the rest of the world put together. Now, you only have to go to Africa to recognize that that is absolutely the case. Pigmentation is enormously variable in Africa, all over the country. People are not the same skin tone. For a long time, the most serious consideration for the reason for skin, uh, for differences in pigmentation was as an adaptation as you move further away from, from the hot sun of the equator. Now, that is definitely part of the selection for pigmentation genes that we see around the world today. But it is certainly not the whole story whatsoever. And that is so obviously true because people at the same latitudes do not have the same pigmentation within Africa and around the rest of the rest of the world. And yet we still cling to these very old racialized epithets, which start with people like Linnaeus in those descriptions with red and yellow and black and white. Uh, and we even know by looking at the genes involved in pigmentation that variation in pigmentation predates Homo sapiens by something like 600 to 900,000 years. So remember that we're you know, 300,000 year old as a, as a species. 
so say half a million, just to round it up by 200,000 years. But we know that in our ancestors, which are older than that, that we see both, both, both genes that are associated with both light and dark pigmentation uh, all over Africa, because we haven't really left Africa by that point. Now, I've got on for an hour now. Uh, there is obviously tons more to talk about, um, but I think it's time for us to get a drink. Um, just to just to wrap up the talk section of this before we go to the questions, the the reason I think it's important to talk about this is is what well, two, twofold. One one is that well you know r- racism is not wrong because uh, it is based on specious science or misunderstanding of of science or uh, lack of knowledge about the history of science. Racism is wrong because it is uh, an affront to human dignity. The point about knowing the science, which is intrinsically linked to the racialization that, that is both contemporary and ephemeral, so it's only a few hundred years old, and therefore can change in, in the future. Our racial epithets are not fixed in time because we are not fixed in time. But understanding that is so important so that people are, are, cannot use science or misunderstanding of science or an ignorance of history to justify stereotypes or racialized stereotypes about the people of the earth my my purpose is i'm a a scientist i'm a geneticist my purpose is is to take away those tools from people who are going to abuse science with that very purpose because science is no ally to racists even though science was based on racialized classification in a time of racism by racists so that's that's my motivation and i like to end with this because I think in science, sometimes we are not necessarily predisposed to talk about the politics that is implicit in our work, because science, we like to think of as being amoral or apolitical. It is not. It is inseparable from politics. It is inseparable from morality, because science is done by people, and it is about people. And so for that reason, I think that if you are someone who's interested in human genetics, or if you are a geneticist or a biologist, and someone who refers to or uses the pool from which human variation is drawn, that is our DNA, our genomes, then this quote from Angela Davis wraps up what I think is how we should be thinking about science and race in the 21st century. And with that, thank you. Everybody, welcome back. I hope you've grabbed yourself a drink. Tell us what you're drinking in test chat. Why not? Uh, and welcome back, Adam. And welcome back, Jesse, as well. Um, it, it is um, very telling that the top question in Slido was "Shows your dog." Um, oh, it looks like it's just been usurped, actually. Okay, but yeah, lots of love for Jesse, indeed. Okay, let's let's get stuck into the Q and A. So. First one we've got here, Adam, is from Paul. Uh, in your experience, does explaining the actual science of race have any effect in arguing with racists? Well, wait a minute. Like, you know, let's let's just deal with um, question one first. Uh-uh. I mean, absolute perfect doggo now, but um, could have done with that half an hour ago, Mister. Sorry, what was the, the what was the question? Does does arguing with racists um, have any have any effect? Well, you know. This is a question I do get asked quite a lot in various forms with various degrees of antagonism associated with it, because I recognize that the title is deliberately pugnacious and, and provocative. And, um, and, you know, right when people, actual racists off the debate me guys go, debate me. 
I'm not really into performative um, uh, debates in, in that sense because it's all in the book. I wrote the book. I've spent 25 years writing the book. I'm not going to stand up on stage and read bits of the book out um, uh, just for entertainment value. Everything I know about this subject is uh, in the book or referenced in the book. So that's that's one aspect to answer that question, which I, I don't know. If people think that's cowardly or weaselly, then um, so be it. That's the way it is. Uh, you remember the old phrase that we used to use about, you know, back when creationism was an issue. Has that gone away now? I think it has. Um, which yeah, we fixed that. It's gone. We fixed that. Yeah, well done us. Um, but, you know, Dawkins used to say, uh, when invited to debate with creationists, that it looks better on your CV than on mine. And another version of that is, you know, never wrestle with a pig because the pig gets dirty, because you get dirty and the pig likes it. Um, and then the third version, I was teaching my daughter these the other day because she's, she's been involved in some racial abuse on, in, um, on Instagram. And the th- I was just saying, let's leave it well alone. Fill your life with joy and double with these guys because the best possible outcome when you're arguing with an idiot is that you win an argument with an idiot. Uh, so, that, you know, in a slightly more serious way, there, 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 there is that phrase, that Jonathan Swift phrase, which is that, well, the, the, the contemporary version of, of it is that uh, you can't um, reason someone out of a position, reason themselves into. And that's to a certain degree why I think the white supremacists are less interesting to gauge with or, or to even talk about than the, than the people I'm more concerned with who are not racist, who don't consider themselves to be racist and don't go around shouting racial abuse, but maintain racialized stereotypes or attitudes, which are part of the what I think is much more important issue of racism, which is structural racism, which is the racism of the everyday that is inbuilt, baked into our society. And that's also why I know there's a lot of questions on, on, on the Slido about sports, and that's why I think sports is, is important. And yes, hilarious, working plants. Yes, I am an Ipswich Town fan. And there's nothing you can say can make that worse. Um, which is that, you know, you get, so there's this, there's this, there's this concept called positive attribute racism where you say, well, you know, black people are better at sprinting or black people are better at, at, at some, uh, long distance running if they're East African or Jews are better with money or brighter or East Asians are better with mathematics. Now, there's two things that I want to do in the book and two things that I do do in the book, which is the first is to address how correct these, these stereotypes are, which I won't go into now because they're, they're, they're complex, but almost none of them hold up under scrutiny. Um, but because of sample sizes and because of, um, you know, sports, although is enormously popular, it is, we, the sport that we watch is elite athletes who are de- terribly misrepresentative of the populations from which they came. So the first thing is that they're not necessarily correct. And the second thing is that even though they're positive attributes, everyone wants to be faster or smarter or whatever it is, they serve to reinforce stereotypes that are rooted in those Enlightenment ideas that sub-Saharan African people, black people are, are physically adept, but not intellectually and, and that, that goes straight back to what Linnaeus was, was saying about the, the inventiveness of, of white people. Um, there's huge sexualization of black bodies, which I talk about a little bit in, in the book. And, and, and just these notions. So, so it's, again, sport, there's one of the papers that I reference in the book, and I, I think I'm answering multiple questions here, um, but there's one of the papers I reference in the book is, is an analysis of sports commentaries that refer to elite athletes 
who are either black or, or of European descent, of, of recent African or of European descent. And in the vast majority of cases where elite athletes are from uh, African-American descent, the commentators talk about their physicality, their speed, their strength, um, their physical um, prowess. And the exact equivalent proportion, the vast majority of references to white elite athletes, they talk about their inventiveness, their hard work and their, their thinking, their intellectual abilities. These things are absolutely baked into our culture. And, I, you know, for the, for the sports fans out there, we don't even notice this until it's pointed out. So next time you're watching some sport and listening to the commentary, just listen for when the references to black athletes are different from references to white athletes. Last week, so I, I believe that cricket is the high point of human evolution. There's at least some fans there. Um, and last week at the test uh, against the West Indies, Jofra Archer was bowling not particularly well. And um, the commentator said he's probably a bit cold out there. Right now. I mean, what, what do you mean by that? This was a day after there was those amazing speeches by Nasser Hussain and, and Mike Holding, who, who some of you will have seen, about structural racism in sport itself. Mike Holdings, I, I, I urge you to seek that out, seek that clip out, because it's an incredibly powerful speech, not just about sport, not just about cricket, but about structural racism. And the day after that, a commentator makes this clumsy um racially stereotyped, structurally racist comment about our second best bowler. Um, so it's right there. It's, 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 it's right there throughout society. And so, you know, uh, uh, the people who think and say things like that are the people that I'm, I'm interested in. A lot of younger people in particular, when I was writing this book, were saying to me, um, I need this book at Christmas or I need this book at Thanksgiving in the States um, because these are the conversations that come up around the, the, the you know, the Christmas, the, the dinner table or in the pub. And I don't feel equipped to deal with them, even though intuitively I they might be wrong. The, the, one of the guiding principles of the book is um, here are your tools. OK, uh, yeah, you lost me a little bit of cricket, but I'm back. Don't worry. So, I mean, it, it's interesting, you know, as, as a Scottish football fan, I'm used to talking about sports commentators talking pish nonstop. It's, it's somewhat disappointing to hear that they're, inadvertently talking racist pish as well at the same time. But, you know, I, I guess it's not that much of a surprise. Um, let's move on, Adam. Next question um, from JC. Are there reliable ways to expose my own racist unconscious biases? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think I think the best answer to this is, well, it's going to sound very self-serving, but I will, I will widen it out. It is read books by... Um, by, by people who aren't white. Read books about racism. There's a whole slew of them at the, at the moment, many of which are absolutely brilliant, um, and they talk about the experiences of structural racism. Akala's is stunning and superb. Renio de Lodge is a mega bestseller. Praise be. Um, you know, my, mine is very focused on the science. It has a very science angle to it, but it, it is, it's much less about the personal experience of racism much more about the, the, the underlying structural bases in science of racism and, and the racism that is inherent to science as well. Um, and, you know, I think the answer is you listen to people, you talk to people who have different experiences from you. I had an interesting experience early on in talking about this book. It came out in February, which is I, I talked about some of the same things at the beginning of a, of a lecture in Bristol as was, uh, and in which the audience of 
several hundred was predominantly white. Uh, and um, when I was talking about the, the milk chugging in the um, white supremacists in the States, um, they, they were laughing, right? They were laughing because it's funny, because they're ridiculous people and they deserve mockery and contempt. And afterwards, a black woman came up to me. And she wasn't she wasn't aggressive. She was she was she wasn't angry about this. She 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 is a, a really really useful point, uh, which was she said, you know, appreciated your talk when you were talking about those guys, um, and everyone was laughing. I was horrified, right? I was thinking, what what am I doing in this room? Um, because it it is a demonstration of your privilege, not mine specifically. It is the demonstration of privilege that you can laugh at these people because it is not your family or your ancestors who were affected by their hatred and their policy and the policies of the people that they they support and i you know i was bowled over by that because i hadn't about it i hadn't thought about it in exactly the same way that your question he was asking um you know how do you check your own your own privileges it hadn't occurred to me but it's not my experience and so it's easy to just point to people and laugh because they're dickheads um, but it's not so easy if if uh, if your experience of their bigotry and their hatred is is different from your own. So I think the answer to the question is you 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 listen to other people. For sure. Um, just just following on that slightly though, Adam. You know, if you're talking about um, should we say ridiculing the ridiculous, uh, I think there's a lot of uh, people who will say that has its place. Sometimes that ridicule may. Um, may prompt them to, to self-examine and such like. So, you know, are there things where ridicule is the right thing versus outrage? Well, well, that's a great question. And I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, has anyone ever been persuaded by ridicule? I think in some ways I feel like I've changed my view on this because in, I think that ridicule might be a young man's game. And as I get older and tireder <laughs> um, and having kids and I don't know. I mean, there is definitely a place for ridicule. It's a problem for me because I like it and I think I'm quite good at it. And, you know, and I get into trouble all the time on Twitter for not being able to walk away from a fight. Um, I'm currently engaged in a hilarious spat with Toby Young um, for the not for the first time, who has decided because he's the king of all scientists that I am not a scientist, which came as something of a surprise to both me and my head of department. Um, and my colleagues and co-workers at UCL. Anyway, I, I, um, I the, you know, the problem with the, as you say, the problem with the ridiculous is they make it very easy. Um, and sometimes I genuinely think that ridiculing people only serves to reinforce yourself and your, your pals, your team against the other. When actually in many of these cases, what you, sh- what, what we need is to reach over those bridges and say, Go on, tell me what you've got to say and let's let's talk about it. Um, you can't do that on Twitter. There's no nuance on Twitter. You can't do it with Toby Young because he's a Wally. Yeah, good choice of words. Very diplomatic. Um, OK, um, let's let's move on since I, I hijacked a question there. Um, let's see. Where was my pint? I was due to be brought. Every time I've done this before, I'm, I've been brought a pint at this point. <laughs> can't you send Jesse off to the fridge or something? You, have you not trained him up that way yet? And Paul is asleep. Look at that. Uh, okay. Um, how do you how do you argue with colleagues in science and academia who bloody well know most of this and are usually convinced by facts but are still racist? Well, that comes at a good time. Good question. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting question. I think that so so 
you know that I, I make that point at the end about science being not being apolitical, much as though we would love it to be, and not being amoral, much as though it should be in principle. That I think knowing our history is absolutely crucial in this regard because you know we we think well data. How can data be um, be structurally racist? Uh, it's only in the implementation or the outcome, the, you know, the, the choices we make about what we do with that data that can be racist, and therefore. Um, and, and therefore, science is, you know, isn't structurally racist. Lawrence Krauss has been banging on about this for the last few few days in the popular press, and I fundamentally disagree with that. It may be more true in high-end cosmology, but it certainly isn't true in evolution and genetics. Not least because our fields are built upon the the, the works of of racists and that those principles echo into the present. But you know, sort of simple, trivial things that are, in fact, heavily racialized and fundamentally affect the nature of our of our scientific discourse, such as the fact that we haven't really sampled the genomes of African people. So all, all of our sweeping statements about in, in this amazing era of genomics are almost entirely drawn from European samples. So we know about European genetics and very little about African genetics which is ironic, given that Africa has more genetic diversity than the rest of the world put together. And we're fixing that, and we're very aware of that in genetics. And that, that is a sort of historical artifact, because most of this work has been done in Europe or in, um, or in, in America. Um, so being aware of that is, is, is one issue. We sometimes use terminology. We don't really have the right nomenclature in human genetics to describe the complexities of genealogy and, and population history and, 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 you know, the use of, of words like race is, well, they're, they're mostly gone now from academia, but we still see papers that talk about Caucasian populations, which is almost a meaningless scientific designation. Um, and we see them in, in, you know, serious academic journals. I think a lot of people are just unaware that this is even an issue. We, we, there's two things worth considering as well. The first is, does this have scientific utility? Now, that is appealing to the pure scientists, the, you know, the people who just want to get on and do their work and are not, con not concerned. I, I don't want to think about the polit political fallout of this. Then, you know, one attack is to say, does Caucasian mean anything? Is that the term you want to use? Because does it correlate with the group of people that you're talking about? Does it have any, um, you know, inherent or essential characteristics to it which are relevant to the data itself? In that example, the answer is no. Um, and then the second question is, is the broader, broader impact of it. You know, by using the word Caucasian, what do you mean by that? Um, are you aware that that is a uh, not only a, has limited scientific utility, but also is has um, historical associations that, that are, are also not scientifically useful, but um, are, are heavily racialized? So I, I think it's important that we scientists are better at history, better at knowing our own history and better at understanding the roots of our, our field. That phrase that, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants, but we also need to recognize that we stand on the shoulders of some some real pricks as well. Sure. OK. And I think I missed a couple of questions, so I'm jumping back up now. This is an anonymous one. Um, and we kind of talked about this during the break. Maybe we can we can expand it out just a little bit. What, um, the question is, what are your views on the open letter about cancel culture to the NY Times recently? Now, I know maybe you haven't uh, got direct knowledge of that, uh, Adam, but maybe you can just talk about your thoughts on ca cancel culture in general. 
Right. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't reckon people will believe me when I say this, but I, I, I literally haven't read that letter. I'm aware of its existence. I am sort of uh, somewhat oblivious to its contents and I can't remember w- which what they're saying in it. So I, I shouldn't comment on that specifically. Um, uh, I am unconvinced that cancel culture as described is a real phenomenon, but I'm, I'm you know, think, thinking about that currently. Um, I'm, I, I feel somewhat aware and slightly allergic to the idea that the, that many of the people, certainly in the sort of race science world, who are most vocal about being cancelled are ones whose, whose careers depend on it. So people who are not known for any other reason than having been cancelled, you know, the sort of scientific equivalents of Lawrence Fox. There's, a, there's an interesting phenomenon as well within this, which is that if, if it is lucrative, it, if, you, if one does become successful, having been defenestrated for right or for wrong, that you lose the imperative, the incentive to, to, to evaluate your scenario in a dispassionate way. Uh, you know, I think about someone like Murray, uh, Charles Murray, who I think is mostly boring um, and has very little interesting things to say about science. In, in his in his most revered work, the bell curve, and his most recent work, which I, I just think is is uninteresting and wrong in un, in interesting ways. I read the other day that he gets fifty to a hundred grand per lecture, maybe I, you know whatever the number is. It is a phenomenal amount of money to be paid to talk about those issues, even if it's ten grand or twenty grand. You know, still that is a lot of money. And in in that, I see that you know you you've got to be incredibly bold to really really scrutinize your own work and positions and data which which is which goes against the things you're saying if your entire not just livelihood but immense wealth is dependent on that i i think i think you see people like that just get polarized into into directions which are away from scientific neutrality or or you know dispassionate evaluation of the data um because they have no incentive to do so uh, when they are being incentivized to reinforce those views or or even bolster them. I think I think that, you know, in a sympathetic way, I think that's what you see with a lot of these people. I think you see that with people like Jordan Peterson uh, as well. That once you start down this pathway and find an audience, especially an audience that are willing to pay for it, then you've got no reason to go back and say, hold on a minute. Was I right about that thing that I said? Or is this data sufficient to support the argument that I'm making? You know, I, I, and, and we're all guilty of that to a certain extent. I have a successful career based on talking about these things. Um, and I say in the book that I have come to these conclusions about the biological non-reality of race by looking at the evidence. Right. Because that's what we should do as scientists and as, as skeptics. But, but you know, I'm, I'm also a human being and I'm also a mixed race human being. And I'm, I'm someone who's experienced racism. and I believe that racism is fundamentally an affront to human dignity. And, you know, you've got to be some cold hearted um, uh, robot not to factor those things into uh, trying to understand the nature of reality. I, I hope that I'm doing this right. Um, but I guess everyone does. For sure. I think there's a lot of those uh, cancelled people out there drying their tears with hundred pound notes as well, for sure. Let's move on. Uh, another anonymous question. And by the way, it's not somebody trying to hide their identity. It's just somebody who hasn't been bothered to create a, an ID on the Slido system. So the question is, why is the racism mostly from white people to minorities? Are there any other examples such as marginalized communities of white people in African countries? Yeah, well, I did talk about that a little 
little bit in the book. And yes, there, there's, there certainly is. Um, I, I mean, this, this was the maybe the person asking the question missed the sort of um, housekeeping I said at the beginning, which was that that I do focus predominantly in the book on um, racialization from its roots in the Enlightenment and European expansionism, primarily because that is the dominant form of racism in Western culture and by extension global culture. Um, but also because it is my my experience, but my culture because I am British. Um, but that is not to say that there aren't other versions of racism everywhere and racialized bigotry everywhere. I talk a little bit about it in, in with regards to Africa um, in the book, and and indeed, you know, the the, the Rwandan conflict is an example of that. Um, I don't really talk about India very much, which is a very racially stratified country. Um, and also socially stratified country as well, but it's very present. So, so um, the precise wording of that question is: it has identified something that I don't do particularly well. I'm aware that I don't do it particularly well. I have some reasons why I don't do it particularly well, but not comprehensive. So, it's it's a it's a great question to ask, and I can't give a fully satisfactory um, answer. Presumably, if you're looking at it on a on a global level, you would maybe direct your attention most to where most trouble is coming from, and it appears to be from from the whites, uh, the white people, you know, um, discriminating against minorities. You know, it's the one thing that we're best at, I guess. Um, okay, next question: How do you prepare yourself mentally when you check out all of those racist websites? Uh, I feel like that's the kind of thing that may cause PTSD after a while. Yeah, yeah. Well. That's um yeah it's, they they are the worst places that I have come across. Um, I'm a I, I'm a pretty mentally robust person, um, which is not to say that I don't find them deeply deeply um, uh, painful, tragic in many ways. Um, you know these are lost souls, and we have I think many of them. Well, I think many of them are are young and. Um, and lost, um, but in many ways they are people who have been abandoned by by society and have found niches. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm a bleeding heart liberal about these things. I think that you don't, you, you know, we, we're not born with these prejudices in, in place, these specific prejudices in, in place. They, these these are taught to us. You know, these are taught to us by bad parenting by by society. And so, in some ways, in my most ridiculously liberal sensibilities, this is on all of us. Um, so I think, you know, I think to a certain extent they deserve our pity. Um, and, you know, well, I would never advocate violence against anyone. But, um, but it's sometimes that is a tough line to, to think about when you're in these in these spaces. You know, I, I get this a lot. And it's sort of a duck's back to me because they're, they're crazy people. And, and and they make for amusing fodder for, for online talks to to skeptics. I got a whole folder full of um, insults that I get sent on a, on a daily basis. Um, but you know, they're, they're sometimes, sometimes again, this is an example of you know expressing one's privilege in this kind of situation. But a couple of years ago, I was I got, I got sent a tweet which said it described me as a Jewish rat and a race traitor, and uh, I thought, well, that's that's it's odd because I'm not Jewish, um, but it's not that doesn't that doesn't make it any better, um, you know. And rat being very specific language of of the third reich and, and the nazis um race traitor I, I i don't know why that is i mean i'm, I'm mixed race i'm married to um a white english woman and um so i guess that's where it came from 
And then the next picture was a was a picture. The, the picture that was attached to that that tweet was a, an oven, right? Um, which, which is you know so so deeply calculatedly offensive. I just. Um, but then it was one of you guys. It was some. It was I think it was one of the skeptics organizations just responded by saying. They posted a picture of an electric oven. These fucking morons can't even get racism right. Maybe just modern racism, yeah. But I, I, I guess it's, it seems to me, Adam, that you try your best to approach some of that horrible attitude with a little bit of, should we say, you know, maybe dark humour, and that's, you know, can act as a shield as, to a certain degree until such point as you think about the implications of it, right? Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, my tone in explaining science is... No, See, Jesse is getting up now because he spotted the cat. No, he isn't. Um, my, yeah, my tone in explaining science is, is, is with a degree of levity. Um, I, I, that's my natural disposition. These are serious issues, um, which doesn't mean they are without sh- shafts of, of levity. But um, Jesse, here, come here. Here, Jesse. All right. Um, you know, I couldn't give a talk with, with I, I wouldn't. I, I would have gone upstairs to give this talk if it weren't to, to you guys, if it was a more, less pub-based discussion. Um, I, I, uh, I forgot what the question was, actually. I was just asking about your use of humour to try and give you a little bit of a mental barrier from some of the horrors that you have to uh, research. My last book, um, which was called The Book of Humans, was uh, about human exceptionalism and you know whether we are special as an organism. And... In writing that, I was I was detailing um, the behaviour of many many different animals, which may appear to be familiar to us because it resembles human behaviour. But, but passing the argument of the book is it, it may it may be evolutionary related or it may not be, and and it's it's not it's it's possibly a category error to assume that it is. In writing that book, I was constantly both flabbergasted and enormously depressed at the end of the day. By the behaviour of animals, um, because we, you know, we, we, we like to think of the, the 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 beauty of nature and the elegance of nature, and there's that pretty clunky phrase, red in tooth and claw, um, uh, but but it's, it's it's usefully descriptive. But I, I, you know, frequently I would, having written that, there's a chapter on necrophilia um, and coercive sex in that book, and I have a distinct memory of getting to the end of reading, you know, 30 academic papers on the behaviour of sea otters or penguins, who both of whom are dolphins, absolute assholes, and closing the computer screen, you know, that is a um, that that's that's that was that was depressing. This, this is worse. This is definitely worse. When we scratch the surface of things we know were bad, transatlantic slavery, obviously that was a bad thing. We just sort of know that it's bad in a super. I I, I knew that it was bad in a superficial way. And, and as soon as you scratch beneath the surface and you realise quite how bad it is, that is profoundly, profoundly. Um, it's it's hard work and it's emotional reading. And I, and that, you know, that's that's why that's why we have to talk about these things, right? It's um, they, they they need they need to be addressed. We need to know these things. It is going to make me feel a little bit less guilty the next time I buy tuna fish that's not dolphin friendly, though. So swings and roundabouts. Okay. Next question from John Bray. Um, doesn't genetic race exist regarding incidents of certain diseases and or sensitivities to certain drugs? Ignoring this risks discrimination with respect to drug research. 
It's a great question. And it's a question I do address in the book because it's a very important question. And the answer is sort of no. Um, and what I mean by that is that the people are different. Populations are different. People with different ancestries have different genetic makeups. And it is not right to not acknowledge those those things. Many of our differences that we see, the visual differences between people um, and, and to an extent behavioral, but physical differences we see are as a result of local adaptation in our march around the world from Africa within the last 100,000 years. These are biological facts. This is the reality of humankind. People are different to each other and we see those differences. The key issue is, do they correlate? Do those differences correlate or map onto the racialized categories that we use socially today? And the answer to that is no, they do not. Now, when it comes to disease, um, there are most definitely regional differences between people in terms of their susceptibility to various diseases. That is unequivocally correct. Do they map to specific races? In not one single case is that correct. Does, does that occur? The, the best or the most frequently cited example is sickle cell disease or sickle cell anemia, um, which is characterized as a black disease and has been historically for the last century or so since it was first described. And to the extent, and I say this in the book, uh, to the extent that it's referenced in, in a Tupac song and other hip hop tracks. Um, is it a black disease? No, no, it is not. It is a disease associated with malaria. So it exists at high frequency in areas of the world where malaria has been endemic um, during ancestral history, which means that there are a significant proportion of Africans um, Sub-Saharan Africans and as a result of transatlantic enslavement, um, African-Americans who have a higher higher frequency of sickle cell. Is it exclusive to African-Americans or Africans? The answer is very much no. Um, does it also exist in populations? No, that's not a question. It also exists at high, high frequency in populations from Greece, from the Middle East, from India, from South America. Basically, wherever malaria is endemic, you find sickle cell. Now that's one example. That's the most frequently cited example. Um, Tay-Sachs was the first um, um, racialized disease um, that was discovered in 1880 and 1884. I think it was from memory by two doctors in London and New York, Dr. Tay and Dr. Sachs, Warren Sachs. And both times it was discovered in his, um, Ashkenazi Jewish families, uh, which at that time had a high degree of consanguinity and recessive genetic disorders are often commonly expressed or currently occur in um, families with a high degree of, of uh, inbreeding or consanguinity. Immediately, and bear in mind this is the late 18th century, this is the trajectory of anti-Semitism that will culminate in the Holocaust. They get labelled as the Jewish disease to the extent that the same was described as a non-Jewish family in London and was given a different name. Right? Now, does it exist at a high frequency in Jewish of so, so knowledge and discussion about who should, one should have children with. Tay-Sachs has almost been eradicating nationalized Jewish populations today, but it is not exclusive to Jews. There are no diseases that I'm aware of that correlate or overlap or match um, to any significant degree of racialized categories that, that we use today. And the reason for that is because the racialized categories we use today are social and not biological. For sure. Great answer. Thank you. Okay, let's move on. The next question is from N, so that's presumably nitrogen. Do you have any recommendations on how to implement non-racist systems within organisations 
or how to uh, dismantle systemic racism? Wow, that's a good question. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, in some ways, the answer is the same as the one before about personal biases, which is to educate oneself. So the, it is incumbent on you know personal responsibility to address our own biases that we may not even be aware of. But that also extends to institutional um, structural biases, not just about race, but also about sexism and, and ableism and, um, and many other um, societal issues. Um, there is, the, of course, the question is it relates to the issue of positive discrimination, which I don't necessarily think is a is a bad thing if implemented correctly, because it's is it not the case with a, a positive discrimination or affirmative action that if there is, you know, if there is a committee somewhere that is deciding that someone should be employed over someone else, um, uh, partly because of their heritage, partly because of their heritage or their ancestry then that has no bearing on the recruitment itself, on the person being recruited. Um, I'm, I'm, it's possible that I haven't given this an to give an eloquent answer, but I don't think necessarily it is a bad thing. Um, we're doing this at the moment at UCL. We're, we're considering how the various um, members of the department that I'm still in, in the 19th and 20th century, many of whom were awful eugenicists and scientific racists, such as Galton and Pearson and Ronald Fisher, one of the greatest scientific geniuses of all time, the staunch eugenicist, about renaming and and um, removing their, their sort of celebratory statue. Well, not there are no statues, but you know what I mean. Um, and my one of the anxieties that we talk about a lot within my department is that in in doing things like renaming, there is a question about whether this is gesture politics whether it is important enough and whether it is a mask for what the real issue is, which is lack of representation, particularly of black kids in, in biology, in genetics, at UCL and, uh, and and beyond. So I don't know the answer to that question. It's an important question. It is an active part of the discussions that we're having at you know, major major institutions such as the University of Vermont. Um But, yeah, so, again, I don't know. I don't know important question yeah i i guess it would be a bit too much of us to expect you to have the answer to that one uh since well, nobody I mean, nobody else has quite managed it so far anyway yeah, sure sure well i don't yeah i mean one of the things i keep saying in the book about and, and saying in talks is i'm not going to fix racism with this book it's not i can't move on from this and go yeah i've done that done it it's it's all good now um uh the, you know the purpose of it my interest in it is to destabilize or to remove the, the, science, the pseudo-scientific crutches of, of racists and to equip anti-racists or non-racists to become anti-racists with, with the right tools to hand. Um, you know, like I said at the beginning, prejudice realigns to the cultural norms. Sometimes people ask me if, if people will always be racist in the same way, and I think, well, or will racism ever end? And I, I, you know, the answer is, I got no idea. Bigotry never seems to end, but it does shift according to cultural practices that, that i take great solace come on come on come on i take great solace in in the historical knowledge that it hasn't always been like this the racism that we experience today is modern come on he's an idiot you're such a handsome idiot yeah you are the best kind of idiot a handsome one okay well i tell you what we're we're running short on time anyway adam let's let's maybe take one more question um 
top of the list at the moment. Um, are there any ways to tell when it's worth having these conversations and you might actually change opinions and when it's not? Or is it worthwhile regardless? I, I, I think maybe, uh, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a thought that even if you have what may seem to be uh, a waste of time conversation with somebody that you might plant some seeds um, at the back of their brain that might come grow later on. But, you know, considering you spend time arguing on Twitter, um, I'm not sure you're the best person to answer this, but give us your thoughts, Adam. Down, down, down. Jesse, down, down. You're not allowed up there. I thought you were telling me to get down there. Down, get down, Brian. Um, um, sorry, so, so the question was what, when, when one decides to, to go in or, or not. Um, yeah. Well, you know, yeah, it's anecdotal, but I, I do get a lot of feedback from people saying, you know, I read the sports section and, and I didn't know that. You know, I, I, that's what I thought. Um, yeah, a lot of this stuff is super superficial in the sense that, I mean, I mean, the prejudice is superficial in the sense that, you know, in sports, the dominance of East, East, uh, East Africans in long distance running is, is, a, is, is 40 years old or so. For the first half of the 20th century, it was, it was Finnish people. Um, Jews dominated both boxing and basketball for most of the 20th century. Um, swimming is one that bugs the hell out of me because there is a long standing myth sometimes said sometimes held by black people that due to bone density um people of recent african descent are biologically less good at swimming now, there's a there's a sort of very misunderstood slightly flaky piece of data that may underwrite that incorrect thought there isn't a difference in bone density that, to do with actuary data and osteoporosis in certain african-american populations but the notion that there is this biological factor which makes the difference between being able to swim or not or being interested in swimming or not is is, is nonsensical. When Swim America uh, in 2014, I think it was, um, surveyed the reasons why 60 percent of African-Americans don't or can't swim, all of the reasons were socioeconomic. Right. Swimming pools after segregation in 64 were built in white areas. Um, uh, uh, swimming is extracurricular, therefore has a socioeconomic cost. There's an economic cost. Uh, absence of role models. There, there, there have been two African Americans in the whole history of the Olympics swimming. Um, um, parents who don't swim is the second biggest correlate. And the third one is not being taught how to swim, right? That, that is how people learn how to swim. They get taught how to swim, not because they have some mystical biological sinking factor. Right? All of the reasons why African Americans don't don't swim, or the majority of them don't swim, are 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 social, not biological. Now, pointing that out seems like trivial um, and, and you know not difficult to research or understand. But the fact of the matter is that the death rate from drowning in African American kids between the ages of eight and fourteen is three times higher than it is for white or European descended kids in America. So in this case. You know, you've got a structural racism which is literally lethal uh, at, at a significantly greater rate than for white, white Americans. And, and worse than that, it's bought into by African-Americans. And, you know, that, that just bugs the hell out of me. That was the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. 
For more skeptical content, including information about future talks, please like us on Facebook, follow at SITP on Twitter, or head to our website at sitp.online, where you'll also find a link to all the ways you can get in touch with us, including our Discord server. Music in this episode was provided by Thula Bora and used with permission. Until next time, thanks for listening.